This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. On today's show, we have returning guest Bill Antoniou, who was last heard on episode 189, the 2022 Oscar recap. Bill hosts the podcast Bad Gay Movies, and you could read his work on his website, myoldaddiction.com, and also at that shelf where he is a regular contributor. He wrote a guide to the Judy Garland films on the Criterion channel that also doubles as an excellent abridged biography that I'll link to in the show notes for people to check out. Bill, welcome back. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for uh, thank you for doing your show the honor of having me on again. I really appreciate it. <laughs> you know what? Ratings were low, and I figured I got to bring in the best to get those uh, those numbers back up. Oh, that's right. Well, then maybe that'll happen on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, I just mentioned your uh, your Judy Garland piece that you wrote for that shelf, and Thank you. That uh, I was, was very reading nice it, of you. and I really enjoyed it. I I know enough about Judy as a person and what she went through, and mm-hmm. obviously, I'd seen that pretty mediocre Renee Zellweger movie mm-hmm. that she does a good performance in, but the movie's only so so. That said. I'm pretty sure I've only seen her in The Wizard of Oz. So for anyone who's maybe like me, who really only knows her for that, or maybe a couple other things, what would you maybe suggest from this, the Criterion Collection of the Judy Garland movies as a good jumping off point, being either being like, hey, this is, if you like Wizard of Oz, you also like this, or if you want to see a bit of range of what Judy has to offer, here's what you should check out next. The answer is A Star is Born. That's the one that really shows her off, although that's not in that collection. So... I actually, the thing about Judy Garland is that she herself was five stars, but she made very few truly marvelous movies. Um, <laughs> and she's from a time when she didn't really have a choice over that. I guess Meet Me in St. Louis is the one, because that's the one that I watch even more often than The Wizard of Oz now. You were pretty glowing uh, when you were talking about that, so that, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I... um I watch it every Christmas. I got my niece into it. Like the first time I showed it to her, she cried because she was really scared because she was like three and, you know, nothing makes sense (laughs) at that point. You just see colors and you start to cry. And then (laughs) by the next year, she had like every line memorized and every song. And so we watch it together every Christmas. So, Well, you've indoctrinated another Judy Acolyte. So good job. Oh, great. Great. No, I enjoyed (laughs) writing that article. I actually... I have read many biographies of her since I was a young kid, so I actually wrote most of that article without looking anything up other than to verify a few dates, which is not mm-hmm. usually the case. I usually do eh, not intense research for those articles, but I, you know, I yeah, I, I read things. Um, while I was with Judy, it's just like, I don't know, she's second nature to me at this point, so... There, there's a few times I've written reviews and things like that where I'm like, I, I really don't need to look things up. You know, maybe I got to clarify the date that it came out, stuff like that. But other than that, I, I have all of it in the back of my head already. <laughs> well, and she's also, she's so popular, especially among, you know, the gay community. And so I was like, I need to keep everything. You, you want to keep everything on the level of your own opinion and interpretation. Otherwise people argue with you about the facts, you know, like that's not mm-hmm. how this works. You know, that's not why she did this or whatever. Yes. And I've, I haven't gotten that, but I always expect it. <laughs> well, I think I think what your article does well is you you present the the basic facts of you know where she grew up, how she got into acting, her studio career, what happened afterwards, all very you know factual information. But then you are mixing it with your own experiences with mm-hmm. watching her as a performer, and I think that's what sort of worked as it 
as an interesting article because it wasn't just you being like, this is what I think actually happened with marriage number four. It was, <laughs> this is, she was married and this is how I felt during this time period of her life. Well, thank you. It's partly because uh, it's a nice memory of my dad when I think about watching it when I was a kid um, and he's 91 now and I scream at him every day. So <laughs> it's just nice to force myself to remember when I liked him. Uh, oh and also gosh. just because she's someone who, you know, she's such a, she has become sort of the cliche of child star woes. And so even people who don't know anything about her know everything about her. So it's just like, how do I make this so that people aren't just reading the same things over and over again about this person that they, that they know so much about? I mean, I knew that she had died of young of a drug overdose when I was like seven years old, you know, it's wow. Yeah. Like she's not one of those um, obscure figures in history. She's incredibly popular and well-known. So. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I guess before we get into today's show, I must use my platform to offer a formal all- apology for a hate crime that I've committed. In the last show, A History of Laika, during the Coraline portion, I talked about the cast and said the British comedy duo Dawn and French. Dawn and French. My God. You've never been more of a straight guy than when you got the the foremost female comedic team of all time wrong. You thankfully sent me a message uh, saying exactly <laughs> that. So with Pride Month closing out a few days ago, I'd like to formally apologize and know yeah. that I should have said French in Saunders, not Dawn in French, because that would yeah. only be one person. I hope you That's forgive right. me too, Bill, and I, I hope oh, I can continue being an ally to the LGBTQ community. You're you're fully permitted. And listener, just so you know, I actually send him these correction emails on a regular basis. <laughs> I am the most annoying person on the internet. And in fact, I don't know if I pointed this out before that people should know. You and I have never actually met. You nope. and I have, we've recorded a few shows together and then, um, I'm rude to you on Instagram somehow without yes. having met each other. We've developed this mean older brother relationship <laughs> that I thoroughly enjoy. So you're just going to have to put up with it. You know what? I like the messages because it means you're listening to the show. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I'm, I feel the same way, but, uh, but at some point I might make it out to the West coast and meet you. And I've never, you know, I've collaborated with Rachel on so many articles and, uh, mm-hmm. I've never met her either. You know, which is fine because she wouldn't hang out with me anyway. She's she's too she she would be too cool for me. But oh, oh she's gonna love hearing this. <laughs> I know I'm gonna I'm gonna hear about that. <laughs> All right. So for the last right. two years, I've done a special episode to celebrate my birthday. In 2020, mm-hmm. I named my favorite movie from every year that I was alive. And last yeah. year, you joined the show as we each named our favorite films from each decade from the last yeah. ten decades. Since I am clearly a masochist for you making fun of my taste in movies, I figured I'd have you back yet again as we have picked 10 different genres and we'll name our favorite movies from them. Are you ready to knock me down several pegs, Bill? I am. I never thought that I would reach um, 45, balding and chubby, and be somebody's birthday present to themselves. So I feel very (laughs) proud of myself for this. (laughs) You know what? I spend months with thinking about this moment every year now oh, I, I can't wonderful. wait for next year's <laughs> and also i apologies in advance because you know uh dakota always says he wants to keep it to an hour and then i blather on for about four days straight so listener if you make it to the end thank you yes and uh and i'll i won't tell you what i cut out uh, great <laughs> most <laughs> of right. it is what you're gonna cut out yeah so I don't know if you approach this uh, with any rules. I sent you this this concept of an idea, and uh, and I originally came up with with a bunch of genres. We can kind of maybe go in mm-hmm. different directions, figure out which would be more fun with 
With ideas like that, I sort of used Letterbox as a guide because, you know, you could filter by genre. So I'd be like, oh, which movies by this genre have I seen before? Yeah. And sort of figure out which ones I'd highly rated. And once I look at all my five-star movies from that genre, I'd be like, okay, which one do I think about the most? Which one, if I was to say, put on a movie right now that's funny, that's serious, what would I put on sort of thing? So that yeah. was my sort of criteria. And then after that, uh, I made my list and I looked at what the movies I have named last year. And I remove them because I don't want to repeat myself. So you might get a couple second places in reality replacing my first place, but that's about it. Did you approach this list with any sort of criteria yourself? Um, similar to yours. And I also did my best to avoid mentioning anything that I mentioned last year. This was actually a much harder exercise for me than last year's was. And last year was torture. So I just can't imagine what you're going to do to me next year. Cause this was very, very hard. You um, know what? The fact that I that I know that I put you in some sort of uh, state of mind that agonized you just made this whole episode worth it. See what I mean? And yet we've never met. Um, <laughs> I also found it interesting. Well, first of all, that's partly because I'm one of those people when you tell me um, what's a good police thriller or whatever. My mind just goes completely blank for some reason. If you tell me what's the best movie of 1972, I'll be like, oh, you like the immigrants. But for some reason with genres, I can never think of anything. Um, so, so I had to do a lot of research on my, on my own blog to figure out, you know, what I would do for each genre. I was amazed at how many of my like top favorite movies don't qualify in any of these categories, which I found very <laughs> interesting. Apparently I'm a real bitch for a, for a good drama. And also you didn't have like a crazy nun genre category. So, you know, I couldn't no, include something sorry. like Black Narcissus and it's not a horror movie, even though I'd love to stretch the uh, definition to make it so. Um, yeah, that that was a bit of a tricky thing was trying to figure out the sort of subgenres because when you're filtering by genre and being like, yeah, that's a action movie, but not really. It's, right. You know, it's more something else. And you're just like, well, what what in the end of the day, by the end of this list, I was like, what constitutes a genre anyways? Absolutely. And uh, of course, whatever, however you interpret it is fine with me. Um, exactly. So basically, I tried to do my best to... Not pick what I think are, like, a lot of my choices, maybe people will be like, that's your number one. And it's like, yeah, because even, it might not be the best movie in that genre, but it's certainly the one that I'm going to put on over and over and over again. So that even if I don't think it's the best, if it's the one that I'm going to watch the most, I think that's the one I should choose, so. Exactly. And I feel like it gives a good window into what our, our movie preferences are anyways. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, okay, so yeah, I think the only other last thing I, I'd qualify about this list is I specifically did not make drama a category because basically a movie's either funny or not funny. If it's not funny, it could be literally anything else. So sure. that was the only reason why I removed drama because that's just casting far too wide of a net. Whereas comedy, at least, like, does it make me laugh? Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think that if you had, if you asked me to make a drama category, it it would be impossible to avoid repeating movies that I talked about last year anyway. So, mo exactly. so moving on. Okay. So the yeah. first one, like I said, just there, comedy. What makes us laugh? Um, I'll, I'll go first. You know, I'm going to, I think we're both going to do like an honorable mention where we're not really going to talk about, we're just going to sort of throw it out there and, mm -hmm. and whatever. And then we'll talk about our actual picks. So, uh, my honorable mention for comedy is the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian. I mm -hmm. This is my favorite Monty Python movie. <laughs> it always makes me laugh way more than Holy Grail. But yeah. uh, my all-time favorite, favorite comedy, I think, yeah. 
Oh, good, good. Excellent. I think my all-time favorite is the recent-ish movie, What We Do in the Shadows. It parodies the best of horror movies, and I love how every time I rewatch it, I just find more and more new things, more subtle sight gags that are off in the corner of the movie, and it just bursts me out into into gut-busting laughter. And all the performances are just so good in this. And the fact that riffs on classic horror movies? Um, I still haven't seen it. Or the show. Oh my goodness, so, really? Yeah, yeah wow, there's something okay. about it that 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 corner of comedy is great. I have nothing bad to say about it. It's not really where it's it just doesn't get me where I live, and so I don't make much of an effort for it. I make fun of your taste in movies because you actually have very good taste in movies and you're this wonderfully open and and you know but you do have this straight guy corner of yours where you're like the classic st- stage crew kid who plays Dungeons and Dragons on the weekend. And I feel like these are the movies that really bring that side of you out, which I say with affection. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I should take that as a compliment or not. Uh, so let's dive into what your comedy. Is, Bill, <laughs> Listen, I'm a I live and let live kind of guy. I'm just saying I see you and there, there, there it is. Um, and you're like, yeah, none of that describes me. I'm like, I know because I know you so well. Um, I love life of Brian, by the way. And it's, uh, still one of my all time favorite, sexiest full frontal nude scenes. For some reason, I find Graham Chapman incredibly hot and I love, I love his nude scene in that movie. We all love a man who makes us laugh, right, Bill? Without a doubt. But there's some, there was something, uh, there was some kind of candor about it that when I saw that movie as a young person, a younger person, I, uh, was anyway, um, my honorable mention, I think you could put just about any Preston Sturges movie in best category in best comedy. My favorite is the lady Eve, which is my honorable mention with Barbara Stanwyck. I think it's, um, an incredibly funny movie that is also really good at capturing the negative side of being in love with somebody. The fact that it makes you hate them, uh, which I really love about it. And it's Barbara Stanwyck's finest moment. Um, but my number one, I have to pick Anti-Mame with Rosalind Russell. It might be my gayest choice on this list. I'm not sure. Um, it's a movie that I have seen a billion times. I will watch it a billion more. I saw it on a big screen. I love every second of it. It's extravagant. It's too long. It's garishly bright and colorful. And then it has this really smart rebelliously liberal message at the core of it. And I love, she's my favorite character because she is outrageous and um, kooky, but there is also a sense of genuine affection and responsibility about her. And so she is um, a real rebel and really admirable at the same time. Wow. Well, you're once again showing me up with, uh, with two picks I have not seen. So we're starting out strong here. Oh, I'm I'm surprised. Um, have you seen any Preston Sturges? No, I actually don't think I have. He's definitely a big blind spot for me. I oh, I, I mean, you're you're missing out on you know your own pleasure. Basically, it's so you know don't watch it for me. Watch it for yourself. Uh, Sullivan's Travels and The Lady Eve are my two favorites of his. Those are those are essential. Yeah, I feel like Sullivan's Travels, it's one of those movies where I can't remember if I've seen it before or if I've just seen so many clips of it that Mm -hmm. I just think I've seen it. Oh, it's great. It's really great. Yeah. Him in his heyday is like, it's just the greatest. And then, and then when he falls off in the fifties, it's, it's kind of sad, but yeah. I feel like 
the comedy genre is probably going to be the one that reveals the most about us because because laughter is so subjective. Mm-hmm. What one person finds funny, another person will think is completely stupid or boring or whatever. So so I think these picks really maybe highlight who we are as a people. Uh, and <laughs> me picking the uh, awkward straight Dungeons and Dragons guy <laughs> movie and you picking the uh, flamboyantly gay movies right. uh, maybe says a lot about us. Uh, and I don't think it says anything too convoluted about us. However, I'll point out, you picked a movie that I liked. So, you know, and and you picked a movie that I don't know that I do like or not. I'm sure that I, if I saw it, I will. I love them because it's the guys who did Flight of the Concords, right? Which is a show that yes. I really liked. So I'm sure that if I watched it, I enjoyed it. I don't know. I just haven't gone around to it. And the whole vampire thing, I know that it's not like a Twilight vampire movie, but it's it's also not something that it just doesn't make it to the top of the list, basically. They do a pretty good job of mocking while also respecting the entirety of the the vampire genre, and yeah. it, and it goes all the way back to Nosferatu. Like it, yeah. it, it chronicles all of them. Yeah, yeah. But we'll move on now to uh, the first genre that I think was kind of tough to pin down, and that is the crime genre. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make a, a note here that my number one pick is one that I had previously stated. So these are now two different picks. So my runner-up is, they're actually both very recent movies. The first one is Knives Out. I I am loving this uh, resurgence of whodunit movies, the Agatha Christie-style type of, of films. You know, some of them, the Kenneth Branagh ones, are not as good, but they're still at least fun. And I really enjoy a good, fun crime movie where you're wondering the whole time, who did it? Why did they do it? All this sort of stuff. So Knives Out really, really hit home for me, and I'm very excited for the sequel, and I'm hoping it's as good as the original. But my number one pick is a more serious one than Knives Out, and that is also a recent film called Hell or High Water. I I loved it. It for some reason, the political commentary of basically being a Robin Hood of stealing money from banks in small increments in order to pay off the mortgage of your own property of your dying mother. So that way you can leave this property to your nephew or your your children and things like that. It just spoke so well to me. And I loved uh, Chris Pinus. I thought he was so good. And the cinematography was gorgeous. So this is a movie that I, I love putting on whenever I, I'm I'm feeling the, the urge for a good crime film. I am in the minority of people who did not like Knives Out at all. Um, I, and I'm always surprised by people who like it. But I try not to get into it because then I sound like I'm insulting people. And everyone's really allowed to not agree with me. Um, despite the fact that I don't sound like I believe that. Um, it's also interesting crime, a crime genre to me never involves murder mysteries, but that makes perfect sense. It didn't even occur to me to think of a murder mystery for this category. Murder is a crime. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me. Um, as someone, (laughs) as someone who is looking after his aging parents, it's good to remind me of that every day. Um, yeah. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't like that film and I, I, I'm, Quite surprised at the people who did, but I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I'll like the sequel. Um, I loved Tyler Highwater, though. I think that's a. I think that's Excellent. a really. That's great one film. that's that seems to be divided on some people. Interesting. I really love when a movie has something to say and doesn't overstate it and puts its emphasis on you know a really really good story because then the message is even that much better received, um, and the characters are interesting. I don't know. It's a it's a very absorbing film. Um, so good choices. Um, my runner up is the 1980 
John McKenzie film. I think that's the director's name. The Long Good Friday, starring Bob Hoskins. This is the British answer to The Godfather. He plays a gangster who is um, looking to expand his territory, but then all of a sudden someone just starts killing all of his henchmen and he doesn't know who it is. It's a really brilliant film. It's Bob Hoskins at his finest. It's also Helen Mirren at her one of her finest in her younger years anyway. It also has um, a very young Pierce Brosnan in a small role as the honey trap who lures um, a gay gangster into uh, the showers uh, in order to get him killed. And it's a really hot scene because I am problematic. Um, <laughs> so if you haven't seen that film, it's, it's, a, it's in the Criterion Collection. Highly, highly, highly recommend. It's so good. But my number one... I thought I had done this one we last year, but I guess I didn't pick it for my nineties or maybe I did was is LA confidential um, mm. from 1997 Curtis Hansen's masterpiece. It's like my favorite American movie of the nineties. Uh, it whittles down James Elroy's incredibly dense giant narrative in his novel into something that is like a fraction of what the novel is. And yet still has like way more plot than any other movie you've ever seen. And at at the core of it is about the solving of a mass murder at a diner in 1950s LA, but ends up having connections with politics and the movie industry. And it's incredibly glamorous. It's sharp. It's scary. It's, um, I mean, I've been watching it on a repeat for 25 years and I haven't gotten sick of it. So it has to be my number one. I feel like the reason why you maybe remember is I think it was my runner up for the nineties because I also adore LA confidential. And I think okay. we both kind of had a little bit of a gush fest about it. Okay. Yeah. So if you like listened we- to the show last year and you still haven't watched LA confidential, you don't deserve to listen to the show. Now <laughs> turn off this podcast now. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that is such a fantastic pick. And, and I love just how dense of a movie it is and how complicated it is. But then the longer it goes on, it just seems I don't want to say it gets simplified, but it just kind of all boils down to, you know, greed in how terrible some humans can be to each other. Yeah. And and just it all sort of like opens up these floodgates of just like it all makes sense. And it's just so flawlessly plotted. Like there isn't a single wasted moment in that entire film. And when I saw it, I remember I went and saw it like three more times on the big screen when it came out. And I just, I couldn't find anything wrong with it. Like I, and my best friend loved it too. So the two of us went to see it together a few times. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's also one of those movies where, it's long and you love that it's a long movie. Yes. It's just yeah, one yeah, of those yeah. you're like, I could I could live in this world forever. Play it for another five, six hours. I would be completely content and I wouldn't get bored at all. I'm not gonna get up to go to the bathroom. I'm not gonna yeah. pause at nothing. And it's also really glamorous. It's so beautifully shot. And even though it's a very guy movie, the female element is so rich in there. Like the the glamorous female movie star element is so is so prevalent, mm-hmm. you know, because Kim Basinger is so iconic in that movie, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And your your other pick, uh, The Long Good Friday, it's one that I have not seen, but it's funny because I did a podcast, I don't remember what the episode was, several, several years ago uh, with a previous co-host, also named Rachel, Rachel Gordon, and she was going through a big Bob Hoskins phase at the time and was recommending this movie, and I never got around to oh. watching it, and I completely forgot about it, and I pulled it up, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally remember Rachel Gordon talking about this movie, so uh, guess I need to re-add it. Yeah, definitely do. I love Bob Hoskins so much and I miss him terribly. I was very sad when he died because he wasn't that old. 
And um, I still felt like he, I felt like he wasn't done basically. And, but he, he did give us so many amazing performances in his life. And that's one of them. Mona Lisa is another one. Um, I'm the generation that got to know him because of Roger Rabbit as a kid. So, you know, mm-hmm. he's magnificent in that he's, he was just wonderful. Um, and, and that's like a, a crown jewel in his achievements as a performer. Nice. Well, the next category, uh, I think kind of much like comedy is really going to show our differences between Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine. Uh, And I I feel like you're going to laugh at at least one of my picks, definitely uh, my runner up. And I probably could have squeezed this into the documentary category, but I'm not. I'm going to give it the mention here. And that is the documentary, The Last Waltz, that chronicles the band's final concert with a ton of great special guests. Yeah. As long as you don't pick and, Grease or Grease 2, because if you do, then I'm turning this off and just never speaking to you again. <laughs> no. I'm no. just kidding. <laughs> uh, and in fact, uh, my my actual pick is Amadeus. Oh. I I really love this movie. I, I think that the musical components play such a key moment, uh, uh, integral part to this world building, especially as uh Amadeus is dying and he is verbally composing his final works and Salieri is like writing them down and slowly you're hearing the notes come and just the the joy that they get of talking music is something that is is still a very profound and affecting scene on me and so it's one that I really love watching mm-hmm. uh, I know it's probably not the typical musical because it's not song and dance sort of thing but I, it's one that I really do like uh, myself so I hope you don't uh, laugh at those picks there no actually I'm obsessed with The Last Waltz I, the first time I saw that I think I rented it I think it was still the DVD days and because I remember watching it over and over all night. Like I would just do stuff on my computer and just kept playing it over and over again. So, so I'm a fan. Um, and then Amadeus is a movie that I, I like it. I think it's good. I feel like everyone gets more out of it than I do. Um, which is fine. Uh, I do think that F Murray Abraham's performance is in like my top five favorite performances of all time. His so good. Yeah. Like his pantomime face is just incredible. The way that he can just, (laughs) with one expression, give you so much, particularly the way he's just appalled at everything. Um, and I relate to, <laughs> yes. I relate to Salieri a lot more than I would like to admit. So I find that performance <laughs> really quite affecting. Um, I, but it is interesting. I mean, you definitely thought outside the box for both of your choices, which I admire. Uh, Cause I feel like I did as well. Neither of us picked like Oklahoma or like a Rogers and Hammerstein <laughs> musical, even though that's probably where we should go with this. Genre and Oklahoma is actually the best of all the Rogers and Hammerstein movies, but that's not my pick. Um, my runner up is actually Terrence Davies's The Long Day Closes, which um, is even more controversial a pick as a musical than Amadeus is because the music is um, entirely on the soundtrack non-diegetically. But you can't you can't have that movie without the song selections that he uses to comment on the memories that he's recreating of his childhood in that film. I love Terrence Davies so much. Like I love him like family and long day closes is my favorite of all his films. It's his masterpiece. And it is just a collage of reminiscences of his childhood. It's kind of a sequel to his first film, distant voices still lives, which took place during the last years of his father's life. Cause his dad died when he was like nine years old. And his dad was this very abusive, oppressive presence in his life and everything changed once his dad died because 
his sisters could now go out with their boyfriends or just go to the movies with their friends, which is something they weren't allowed to do. And he could do so much more as well. But then of course he also struggled because his single mother had to, you know, raise children on not a lot of money. Um, So all these things are in his memories in this film. And he became obsessed with films from when he was a small kid, ever since he saw singing in the rain. So like there's all this incredible, um, musical selection on the soundtrack. I'm not supposed to be talking this much about my runner up. So I apologize. Uh, just watch the long day closes. The final scene in that movie is the thing that I want to be looking at and hearing when I die. Um, that's all you need to know. My number one choice is also from the British Isles and it is Mike Lee's topsy turvy from 1999, which is a, I believe historical reenactment of the creation of the Gilbert and Sullivan musical, the Mikado, uh, featuring a wealth of performances from that musical, as well as other Gilbert and Sullivan selections. And also just the the minutia of the processes of putting theater together, which when I watch that film, makes me, it makes me so happy because I, I love doing theater. And then, of course, since COVID and having not been able to do theater for the last few years, it makes me even more nostalgic for the, the good and the bad that I recall of... Um, treading the boards as it were. And I just, I just think it's an incredibly beautiful and uh, again, very long, but rich and exciting uh, film. Once again, two movies that I've not seen. The first one uh, I have not seen uh, the long day closes at all or, mm-hmm. or even heard of it. So that's a, that wow. sounds like a very fascinating pick. Topsy Turvy is one of those movies that like I can vividly remember walking by in in Blockbuster or any other video store and just seeing that cover and wondering what was this movie about. And mm-hmm. it's been one of those movies that I've known I probably should watch. I love the theater too. And I grew up in that world as well. So I probably should watch this movie. And I love the cast. It's got such a great cast in it. Yeah. So I'm shocked that I've never sat down to watch it. Yeah, it's just, it's probably not Mike Lee's best film, but it's my favorite of all of of all of his films. So, and if you like him, then you should definitely see it. Yeah, I've only seen, I think, uh, a couple of his movies. Mm-hmm. Mr. Turner is the one that comes to mind, one that I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's That great. I know a lot of people didn't care for, uh, but I really fell hard for that one. He, well, he, he challenges people's notions of what a film should be, right? Because he's not someone with a beginning, middle, and end. His movies are very... Um, he reminds me of Almodovar in the way that it's all small arcs, one after the other. So you don't quite know where you are in the story. And you just have to you just have to soak it in, you know, you just have to enter its world and soak it in and just appreciate how compelling everything is, you know, like not a lot of people talk about his naturalism. I don't really find him naturalistic. I find that he makes these very highly dramatic situations that are actually quite contrived. He makes them really compelling and emotionally believable because of the, the fine tuned work he does on everything, you know, the way that he works with his actors for months and months and months before he writes a script and all that stuff. Like it's the, the polish is really felt by the time you get to the finished product. Yeah. You can really tell that when you're watching his films. Mm -hmm. All right. uh, Moving on the, I know why I made a documentary pick for my last choice, but here we're going to make (laughs) another documentary picks. Yeah. And my runner-up is a movie I've watched once, and I will never watch it again, but it doesn't remove the fact that it's probably the single greatest documentary film ever made, and that is The Act of Killing, which is about the Indonesian uh, war crimes during the Kamaruj era, where uh, they get these 
criminals to recreate their murders set to, uh, much like what we're doing, different movie genres, and for them to be open and candid about the way that they uh, mass-murdered people that they deem to be communists. Mm -hmm. It is fascinating. It is terrifying. It is enthralling. You can't take your eyes off of it, and by the end of it, you feel so sick to your stomach, you hate the world and everyone in it. Yep. Uh, but I will never watch it again because it is it is so tough to watch, but it is so, so good and such a vital film. And, and the fact that he was able to make a sequel, The Look of Silence, and have it be almost as good but yeah. not quite there is a testament to just how skilled of a director Joshua Oppenheimer is. That's interesting. That I actually said, like the second one more. Do you? Yeah. Oh, why is that? Yeah. I don't know. I f- maybe it was more personal or something. I don't know. I mean, I love them both. I think they're both brilliant. And uh, if I like the second one more, I only mean by an increment or so, but uh, cause they're both really quite savage. I mean, just the balls that he had to, you know, just to be there and to film all these people doing these talking about these things is just incredible to me. But anyway, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, it's okay. Yeah. And, and these, and these movies are tough because yes, he does have the balls to make these movies, but then when there's these few moments where he, you feel he asks a question that goes just too far and, and they suddenly, turn and stop and they, they remove the act and and you worry for their safety their yeah. literal safety and one and, and and it's so terrifying to watch of what someone that has those abilities to do to people uh turn that back on basically for sure but my actual pick is one that uh, will probably ruffle some feathers, whether or not it is considered a movie or not. The fact that it was nominated for, it won an Oscar, I consider it a movie, and that is the uh, epic uh, films uh, O.J. Made in America, which it's it was like five one and a half hour chunks. It, I think it was like a, a nine or a 10 hour movie. I can't mm-hmm. remember how long it was. It was, it was absolutely massive. It originally aired on ESPN over the course of a week. That's how long it was. But you know, I've never cared about the OJ Simpson case, the trial, all that sort of stuff. I was, I was too young when it happened. I was born in 1989. So I was, I was just a, a young child. When okay. It we so get it. it. Rub it in. Yeah. We get it. Yeah. I was 12. <laughs> I get it. Yes, yes, old man Bill here. Uh, But the fact that it's able to look at the entire career of O.J. Simpson as a football player, as a movie star, as a, you know, uh, a personality and connect his upbringing to racism that was happening at the time Mm -hmm. through what was happening with the Rodney King beating and the trial and how that sparked off everything that happened with the O.J. Simpson and the reaction to the crowd of people wanting him to be innocent and everything like that. And then the after effects and the fact that they got interviews from literally just about everyone involved in this case from lawyers from both sides, judges, uh, media presenters, people that were, you know, waiting outside the courtroom. This film is so expansive. I I don't think I've seen anything on the scale of this. And that's why it had to be almost 10 hours to do it. But it was so worth it. I think the Oscar was specifically for the first episode. I think that because I think they screened it in theaters to qualify or something. And that's why it was a controversial pick. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. I have been meaning to watch this documentary since it came out and I haven't gotten around to it yet. It's the only nominee of that year that I haven't seen. So it's um, a big commitment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I bet. But I, I'm, I'm sure it's, I mean, I have not heard anyone 
talk about it with less enthusiasm than what you just gave. Like everyone seems to love it. So I am looking forward to it because I do remember that summer extremely well. Um, when did that happen? Like 92? I think it was 92. Yes. Yeah. It was around that. So I was like 15. And cause I remember, be, I remember going to Greece that summer and I remember my friends telling me how lucky I was to get away from like OJ coverage for just a couple months, you know, but I still remember all of it. It was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I watched the well, Ryan Murphy series. So, um, Oh yeah. So my picks are, um, and yours are very good. I approve. Um, Thank you. My uh, runner-up is Connie Chikawa's Tokyo Olympiad from, Ooh. is it 1965? He films the Tokyo Games um, and does it in a way that is incredibly dynamic and fascinating. And I don't know why. This movie is like two hours and 45 minutes, and it's just him filming all the athletic events. And I've watched it like eight times. I can't get enough of this film. I think it's so smooth. Um, and then my number one... This was actually a tough one for me to decide because I also, I do love Barbara Koppel's uh, Harlan County, USA as well, but I haven't seen that in a long time. The one that I've watched many times uh, because I have a destroyed brain is Hearts and Minds um, by, um, oh, I'm blanking on the director's name. Is it Peter Davis? Is that his name? It's the film that's basically credited with stopping the Vietnam War. Even Errol Morris felt this because it was like the first time that I guess major audiences got into a theater and saw a lot of the footage that has become very um, commonplace to us now, like the um, the little girl running naked down the down that road, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Who actually, um, my cousin, my cousin actually met the, that woman recently, who was in that famous footage. Uh, so anyway. It's a film that looks at America's involvement in the Vietnam War from every possible angle, um, including um, following one of the most fascinating aspects of it is following a soldier who had been a prisoner of war and now in release is like touring the country, talking to kids about his experiences and talking about how great it was that we're over there and, or, you know, that they are over there and that, um, and what a great idea this war is. And that's partly because he didn't really see most of the war because he was basically captured the minute he got there and didn't experience it. So he doesn't really know what he's talking (laughs) about. Um, and there's interviews with politicians and there's interviews with people from all sides. Um, it's, it's a really, really, really incredible movie that despite being quite devastating, obviously is also um, really like entertaining is the wrong word, but I just, I just find it so, so captivating. I showed it to my sister not long after she gave birth to my niece. Um, Cause my sister and I uh, always went to the human rights watch film festival every year for her birthday uh, she liked to spend her birthday crying over people in difficult circumstances anywhere in the world. Cause that's what she's <laughs> like. Um, and so after she had my niece, that was not possible when my niece was a newborn baby. So I was like, all right, I'm going to bring depressing documentaries to your house and we'll celebrate your birthday that way. And I remember hearts and minds was one of them. My sister studied the Vietnam war very intensely in school. So she knew this movie was really right up her alley. And um, she had a very hard night because of me, because of it. And that's what I think of now when I think of this film. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is one I've heard a lot about, obviously mm-hmm. you, uh, you, you mentioned other similar documentaries that uh, like the Errol Morris ones mm-hmm. where I've seen some of them before, 
but uh, but wow, th- that sounds like a fascinating one. The Tokyo Olympiad one, I had wanted to watch it. There was, I think it was the last Olympics or two Olympics ago or whatever it was on the Criterion Channel. They put up all the Olympiad movies, and we couldn't but watch the any of them. Was we couldn't watch any of them. Yeah, I was so excited. Yeah, like usually <laughs> the so Criterion Channel will have a few things missing in Canada, but with that one, it was like you clicked on it, and there was absolutely nothing available to watch in Canada. And they had like a mm-hmm. hundred movies, like they had a hundred years of Olympic movies, and we couldn't watch a single one. I was I was so crushed because yeah. it, it's the sort of thing where like. You see the box sets and you're like, ooh, those look really nice. But like, I'm not spending two or $300. No, it was like more. I think it was like $500. It was a very expensive box. Set. Over, over was the like, whole yeah. 100 years one? Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, and I tweeted them. I was like, if you're not going to give us any of them, don't even put the option there. Like, I don't even want to see the little thumbnail giving me the, like, I don't want to know that it's there <laughs> if I can't watch any of it. How dare you? exactly yeah. yeah so like i'd seen this box and i was like oh that's really cool but i don't know you know would i actually watch it all how would that work and see it coming to Criterion cheering channel it's just like ex- it, finally i can i can actually see what this is like and and nope they uh they teased us they 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 teased us and ruined my day when i realized i couldn't watch these yeah. movies that one i definitely recommend it's also it's fascinating to watch the olympics where it's just athletes performing and there isn't like an ad for every single little thing surrounding them everywhere, you know, like it's a different <laughs> vibe. And yeah. and also that these movies were all made by like filmmakers. They were made by artists. It wasn't journalists and not to say anything bad about that because, you know, people like to watch the Olympics and they like the, the no muss, no fuss coverage, but it's just so interesting with a lot of these films from the games of the past Lenny Riefenstahl's Olympiad is another example of this, where it's like you have an artist who cares about how they're framing and, and lighting and shooting everything, you know. Also, the the interesting fact of, of both, you know, the, the Riefenstahl one and, and the Japanese one is the fact that politics plays such a background to these events yeah. that it's impossible not to connect it to everything that's also going on in the world at the time. For sure, yeah. Visions of Eight is also an interesting one. It's a film about the Munich Games where the... Oh, and the bombing the, took place? Where the Israeli um, athletes were mm-hmm. kidnapped and murdered. And um, that's an interesting one because like, you see all the games being actually covered, but then it does have to, at some point, acknowledge the, the trauma that also occurred <laughs> at these games. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, so moving on to one that I'm going to call a genre and people are going to be very mad about this one. Mm. I understand animation is not a genre. It is a medium. Yes. But for the sake and purposes of this, I'm calling it a genre because we're specifically picking animated movies that we love. So that is the only reason why I'm calling it a genre at this time. Fair I enough. understand that it is a medium. It's not as there stupid as when people call foreign films a genre. You know, which you'll notice, I I, I did not do that no. because I, I I in my list I was very tempted to be like movie, not in English. I'm like, well, that's the same as doing drama. Like, I mean, we could pick one to talk about it. English. It's just that like foreign films are also dramas and comedies yes. and police thrillers or whatever. So yeah, yes, yeah, and and uh, we're probably both going to have several films that are not in English. I've already had one of my documentary picks as a movie that is not in English, so. Mm. It's more to come of that. <laughs> but speaking of which, movies yeah. not in English, my runner-up for animation is the Miyazaki film Spirited Away. I only recently watched it, I think, a, a year or two ago, and I have no idea why it took me this long to watch Spirited Away. Just 
the world building, I was just so completely blown over. The the heart, the humor, the fact that it doesn't treat children like children. They they treat them like they're people that are actually growing up and need to make decisions for themselves. And it just was so overwhelming and all-consuming. I absolutely loved it. I, I still have not seen enough Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli films. I, I need to, to fill that out in my blind spots. But this one absolutely knocked it out of the park for me. I, I'm missing something about that film and I fully accept the possibility that I just need to watch it again to get it because I don't, I can't think of any other film where so many people, particularly people whose opinions I respect and admire, not yours, obviously, um, obviously, obviously, um, where they love a movie that much. And I just think it's mm, okay. And I wonder if it's partly because I saw it in the theater, which means I had to see it dubbed in English. And I like those films a lot more oh. watching them in the original language. So mm-hmm. there's something about it, or, or maybe it was just the mood I was in that day. I just feel like I missed the boat on this one and the jury's still out and I just need to watch it again. Um, and I just haven't gotten around to it, even though it's been a mere 20 years since it came out. Uh, so obviously it's not a super <laughs> high priority because I loved Howl's Moving Castle. I loved The Wind Rises. Like everything I've seen of his, I love. So it's just like, how can I not love the one that is everyone's favorite? Or maybe... Yeah. Interesting. But also some directors are acquired tastes. Like Ozu is my favorite director. And yet the first time I saw one of his movies, I fell asleep because I was so bored out of my tree. Like sometimes you just need to sort of uh, learn the glossary of the f- filmmaker that you're watching and then once you're in you're in you know so i don't know no i think i think that's a pretty fair assessment yeah but my my actual pick is the stop motion animation film fantastic mr fox by wes anderson i i adore that anderson was able to take a relatively small children's book and make it this i keep talking about world building but this is such a creative and imaginative world that only someone like Wes Anderson can do with his sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something as simple as when uh, Badger is being talked to, him, he doesn't understand something. His eyes like literally glaze over mm-hmm. and it's just like little visual gags like that. Just absolutely get me or, or, or jokes like, when they decide to poison the the guard dogs and they stuff the poison in blueberries and like, well, why blueberries? Well, dogs love blueberries. It's like such a non sequitur that I really enjoy that sort of like irreverent sense of humor. And, and everyone that listens to the show knows I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan. So it's no shock that a Wes Anderson film is going to find a way to make the cut for me. Yeah. That's one of his absolute finest. I, um, and for me, that's the end of an era for Wes Anderson because it's the last time that his sort of, Um, emotional poignancy, particularly involving father son relationships really works as, as sort of the miserable undercurrent of the comedy. I find that his movies got very shallow after that. I don't really like moonrise kingdom and I enjoy um, the grand Budapest and I enjoyed the French dispatch, but I don't really think much of them. Um, I'd actually really love Isle of dogs, but I think fantastic. Mr. Fox is definitely him, you know, scoring on all points. I think it's really great. What are your picks, though, Bill? My runner-up is Loving Vincent, which is just one of the most fascinating movies I've ever seen. The idea that you animate with oil paintings and take, like, I don't know, 800 years to do it. I don't know how long they worked on this movie. Um, But that the storytelling is also so strong and that you use the convention of film noir within this story of investigating the truth behind 
Vincent van Gogh's um, ex- life experience and the experience of his death specifically. And that you also make him this beautifully poignant heart, you know, tragic figure. I, d- I find that movie so deeply moving. Um, I've seen it a few times. I think it's really great. Uh, my number one is pretty basic though. It's Fantasia. I saw it as a kid. I've never gotten sick of it. It's very high art. It's very unlike anything Disney ever did. It was not super popular at its time because it's not, you know, deeply entertaining for kids considering it comes out between Pinocchio and Dumbo. Um, but it still has such a sheen to it, you know, like, and it still feels so modern after all these years. It's not a film that has aged at all. I had the pleasure of seeing it on the big screen when they re-released it in, I want to say 1990. Oh, oh, you're talking about the sequel. Yeah. yeah. The sequel's okay. Uh, but in 1990, they restored it and re-released it. And, um, and so I saw it in the theater and I I was just blown away by it. I think it's so good. Um, and I, I still think it's so good. And also probably truly one of the most terrifying movies a child could ever watch. (laughs) Yes. Although I was like 12, so I wasn't scared of it. If I had seen it maybe as a small kid, probably, I mean, those, those brooms with their arms are very menacing and the Walpurgis night sequence at the end is really quite scary. Um, But I also, I had a mom who told me that only stupid people are scared by scary movies. So I wasn't really, my goodness. yeah, in case you're wondering why I'm so funny and nice, um, it's, (laughs) it's that I had parents who, who never really gave me the option to be vulnerable about these things. So, (laughs) so I just grew up. Well, maybe pathologically insane for, for anyone that listened to the the david cronenberg episode when i talked about me uh <laughs> my aversion to horror movies maybe that explains a lot about me i'm just a stupid person <laughs> well we already knew that um if the shoe fits right absolutely well yeah because i find that very interesting that that's a genre that you completely avoid i mean i avoided it as a kid because i found them boring i didn't mind i mean i thought i don't know that i like to be scared but it didn't help that those movies never had fabulous women in them or and they were always mm. cheaply made like they're they're not glamorous in any way so it wasn't until i was much older that i sort of gave them a shot and i've enjoyed my fair share of them but like it just wasn't something i was interested in as a kid well we'll we'll put a pin in the horror talk sure. for now because that will come up uh shortly but i do want to uh absolutely second your your choice for loving vincent mm-hmm. The fact, you know, you, you talked about the the way they they make an animated movie out of oil paintings. Quite literally, you, you watch this and you're like, oh, wow, the, the, the computer CGI on this is fantastic. No, that really is oil painting. Yeah. And you think about it and you're like, well, you know, if you can have 200 people all animating, you know, Mickey Mouse or whatever character you want to think of, and it all will always look the same every frame and you don't realize that it's different people doing different portions of it, that makes sense in your head. But the idea of everyone painting like Vincent van Gogh, his exact style Mm -hmm. that for some reason, like causes your brain to short circuit be like, well, what do you mean? Everyone is literally doing oil paintings, the exact same. And it it looks completely symmetrical all throughout. And you don't notice any sort of talent gaps or style gaps or anything like that. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. And I have a weird passion for van Gogh, van Gogh, however you pronounce it. And I've, I've seen so many movies about him and I love them all. Like I love Altman's Vincent and Theo and I love uh, the Willem Dafoe one. And I mm-hmm. loved uh, Kirk Douglas and lust for life, but loving Vincent is probably the one that I'll return to the most often. I think what it does very interestingly is something that films, when you tackle 
a person who is so larger than life where you know their work more than you know the person, it's sometimes hard to boil their essence down. And they did a very interesting job by making it, like you said, this noir crime mm-hmm. aspect of figuring out how did he die. And you almost remove Vincent as a character yeah. with the exception of being in flashbacks and brief moments. And it's about how did his art transcend his life? Yeah. And I think that was a very novel and interesting way for the filmmakers to capture someone's essence. Yeah. And also examining like when it comes to great artists or just people that we know famously, but we don't know personally, like how much of it is what we, what we think about them and how much of it is the reality, like the icon versus the man. Yes. Yeah. Especially from an era where, you know, it's not like we have recorded interviews right. with Vincent, so we can't be like, oh, this is what he actually said. No, it's based on secondhand accounts, and then those get translated into third and fourth and fifthhand accounts, and suddenly they become rumors and hearsay and myths and all that sort of thing, and what is real and what is fiction. Yeah, especially in his case, because he's been reinterpreted over time. You know, like a lot of what we know about him now is different from what has been now established as misunderstandings of him in the past. Like the Kirk Douglas version Mm -hmm. is of this alcoholic who brawls and is passionate and distraught over women. And, you know, like even the famous ear cutting story is, is told very differently now than it was in the past. So he's also a figure of fascination just for the fact that the way his story is interpreted is, is suited to the times in which it is told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which sort of goes back to my pick of Amadeus, where maybe you just need to kind of throw everything out and just do your own thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. We'll move on, though, to the next category, which is sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And this is another, once again, genre that you can interpret it in many different ways. And so much so with my runner-up pick is Her, which is a movie that mm-hmm. on the surface doesn't seem very sci-fi-like, but it does take place in a futuristic world. But other than that, you know, it's it's a pretty down-to-earth, relatable drama mm-hmm. about uh, a man falling in love with a woman. The only problem is the woman isn't real. It isn't even a woman. It's, it's the cloud. It's yep. the servers. <laughs> uh, it's Joaquin Phoenix, probably at his most surprising for me because he had spent so much time leading up to this movie either being a a complete psychopath or someone who who was trying to really perfect the tough guy image and all that got stripped back and we just get this really heartbreaking portrait of a lonely man who is trying to be happy who wants to be happy it's him at his softest for sure yeah the mustache it it was just like yeah it, it really, it actually really did. And it didn't make the mustache and the glasses, yeah. you know, he could have looked either, you know, like that weird, creepy pervert that lives in his van mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> like wears a trench coat with nothing underneath, but he doesn't, he, he, he has, and maybe it's a testament to the fact that walking Phoenix maybe is underratedly one of the best actors of modern era. Mm. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's one I, I really adore, but that's not, that's just my runner-up. So yeah. once again, we have to keep reminding ourselves we have to move on. Good choice, on. though. My actual pick. Thank you. Thank you. My actual pick is the Alex Garland film Ex Machina. Oh. I I love that it's a simplified story. It's a three-hander. It's a chess game going back and forth where you never really understand who has the upper hand. And whenever you think you know who has the upper hand in these stories, they really don't. They're actually being played by someone else who is pretending to be subservient or pretending to acquiesce to them. And it's such a exciting movie. And then by the time you get to the ending and the, the coda of this movie, and you just sort of realize how dark and heavy this subject is 
and the consequences that the world could possibly have if this would happen. And it just, every time I watch it, it just blows me away that they're able to simplify mm-hmm. a robot story so well. Yeah, you know, I I had a few problems with that movie. For me, the story kind of loses a lot of steam by the end, for me. But it's also, I only saw it the one time in the theater, and I remember so much about that movie in exact detail. And I remember the feeling of being in its atmosphere. It's something that Alex Garland does exceptionally well. So that even when like annihilation is a movie that I think is really cool, even though it's not flawless, but I also mm-hmm. remember the feeling it gave me. Um, and I haven't seen his new one. I know that it didn't seem to work with a lot of people, but I think that I would still enjoy that aspect of it, even though I don't know, maybe it's not a great film, but um, ex machina. I think it's really good. I, I, and I get why people love it. It's also, um, I remember being really happy that it won best visual effects, even though it's not the most like, uh, of the, it was nominated with things like guardians of the galaxy and Avengers stuff, yes, you know, like things that showy. Yeah. Like things that had way more visual effects, but the thing about ex machina is that you don't question anything that you look at. Everything looks so natural and specific and sharp and real, even though she's obviously not a robot in real life. So like it is it, mm-hmm. the, um, There's a a tangible quality to that movie that I really admire a great deal. And it came at a time for me in in Oscar Isaac's career where he was just sort of blowing up, but it seemed like every project he was doing was so wildly different. I remember watching that movie and not realizing that he was the same actor I had seen in about five or six other movies because he just looked different with the shaved hair and scruffy beard. And he's wearing like just the undershirt and you're like, who, who is this guy? And in connecting the pieces that he was able to just so disappear into these characters yeah. just blew me away. Yeah. And also Donald Gleason as well, who is like, I mean, at that point I remember he was in absolutely every movie that was coming out. Um, but he, he also made a lot of really interesting choices cause he was in that. And then a few years later he was in that movie, the little stranger, which, I, which was an unjustifiably ignored film that I really, really liked. But what are your sci-fi picks there, Bill? Uh, I'm a real basic bitch on this um, category. I don't even think we need to talk about my picks cause they are so, predictable but they are the two films that i wa- that i watch like regularly so my runner-up is alien uh no explanation necessary and my number one is nope. 2001 a space odyssey again no explanation necessary i mean i have never the, 2001 is my most is me at my like my most guy side you know like my most bro side <laughs> um but i've never gotten sick of that movie i have seen it on the big screen at least 10 times. Like I see it every time they play it like a compulsion. And then at home I've watched it. I've owned it on every format. Um, It just takes you into outer space, you know, like, and it's so mysterious and enigmatic. Uh, And a friend of mine actually told me that she saw it when it first came out in 1968. And she never before remembered being in a movie theater and losing her sense of time. Uh, And I, there's just something, uh, it, it's 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 just incredible. I don't think I need to explain to anybody why I like it so much because it's you know it again it's a pretty familiar pick, but um, I've never ever ever gotten sick of it. Well, I've shared it before on the show, and and I'll share it with you. This is probably one of my single biggest blind spots, and there's a specific reason. I really really want to see it, but I want to see it in a theater. And there's been a few times where I was playing when I lived in Toronto, it would every once in a while pop up there and I just never got around to being able to go see it in a theater. And so I will not watch it at home. I will only watch it in a theater for the first time. I don't blame you, but if it gets 
I mean, if you've never seen 2001, what do you talk about with the stage crew kids while you guys are doing Dungeons and Dragons? I don't really know what you have to connect with with these people. (laughs) But um, if it if it takes too long for that to happen, please just figure it out. You know, uh, don't watch it on a computer screen. If you have a television uh, and you have a decent enough sound system, you'll do okay. I mean, I watched it on VHS for the first time when I was a teenager on one of those TVs that has like the wooden, you know, frame, and um, it's still. rocked my world so you know its power is is greater than that but hopefully hopefully it'll find its way onto the big screen in toronto we always they they always used to play it at the light box around christmas time because they would always do the 70 millimeter series over the christmas holidays mm-hmm. until their lamp broke or something and then they didn't want to fix it so they didn't do the 70 millimeter series for a while until i guess a grant came in to take care of that um but um but that was always the staple of that. And they would play it like five times over a week or whatever. And I always made sure at least once a year, I did my best to, to make it, to see it. Cause I don't know. It just, it's a movie whose, um, whose bloom has never withered for me. Well, that's good to hear. And, and once again, no, no argument with your pick for alien. It was one that was in contention for me, both for this and for the horror category as well. I, I love that movie. So yeah. Much. I mean, I, I, I'm I, another one. I just, I can't get sick of it. And I, you know, I've, I think I've owned the box set on multiple formats as well of all those movies. I love that franchise. I, I, I've probably watched the second one more just cause it's like an exciting action movie. And it's, it might've been the first one that I saw. I don't remember, but alien is probably the better film, you know? I would agree. I know a lot of people are really high on aliens, yeah. but I, I, I'm only so, so I like it. I don't love it. Whereas alien, I adore. It's possible that if we did this next week, I would choose the other one. I think it probably just depends on the mood I'm in. I think that's the case with every one of these categories though. So, (laughs) all right. Now, speaking of horror movie, Mm -hmm. we're going to go for mine and, uh, mine are pretty basic too, in the sense of they're both, you know, pretty stone cold classics, which I would hope that even you don't have something to argue with me about for them. Mm -hmm. My runner up being jaws, I, I adore Jaws. I love collecting Jaws themed things. I have so many posters and t-shirts and I love mashups of it where, you know, anytime there's some sort of sea creature movie, someone creates a Jaws ripoff poster. I love that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's only got like two scary moments in it, but both of them are, are, are so good. It's about building the tension and creating the, these characters who are so invested in what's going on. And I also love how people are, are revisiting it and finding it more and more topical every year that they watch <laughs> it, which is so fascinating yeah. to me because this was a movie that I, I almost feel like Spielberg was just so focused on, on making the best shark movie. He didn't even realize that he was making a sociopolitical commentary that would still be relevant like 40 50 years later for sure it's also my favorite summer movie like you can smell the summer air in that film oh yeah yeah Yeah, i fully i actually always forget to think of this as a horror movie even though that doesn't make sense um because it of course it is for me when i think of horror i always think of like a a a villainous humanoid going after people Mm -hmm. um but uh I have seen Jaws so many times. I know every single shot of it off by heart. And I've, uh, it's another one that I've never gotten sick of. It's another one I've never gotten sick of seeing on the big screen. It's so much fun. Yeah. That's, that's what is it? It's just pure fun. Yeah. It's what you want from a really good horror movie that you're just going to enjoy yourself being in that yeah. world. And there are shots hours. that still scare me every time I watch it. 
Yes. But I think you will probably maybe uh, agree more with my my actual pick as being more horror-oriented, and that would be Rosemary's Baby. This was a movie I'd also only recently seen uh, a few years ago, and I watched it, and I basically finished it, and I was like, well, this is a flawless movie. There's there's nothing I can complain about this movie. The, the character arcs are great. The performance are fantastic. The music is great. The set design, the production, all of it just works there's not a single wasted beat or moment i know it gets a little silly at some point especially the very end Mm -hmm. but i think the build-up for it just works so well for me that it you know i finished i was like well what can i add to the conversation about rosemary's baby it's a perfect movie yeah this is our first overlap dakota this is very exciting because i had rosemary's baby as my runner-up although my two horrors are completely interchangeable so on a different day it would definitely be my number one it's another film again i mean what else am i going to put on this list except movies i've seen a billion times but it's another one that i especially when i first saw it as a teenager i taped it off of city tv late great movies and (laughs) watched it an inordinate amount of times like i know this movie exceptionally well um, and it's just, I mean, I know we're not supposed to talk about Roman Polanski, but, um, uh, you know, aside from the fact that he's the worst babysitter in the world, um, he <laughs> is actually one of the greatest filmmakers who ever worked. Uh, and I am able to hold both of those thoughts in my mind at the same time, which will shock the internet. Um, his masterful command of atmosphere is unparalleled the way that he can make you feel like you're in the uncanny without you really knowing exactly why. Like, it's not specifically a camera angle or a sound cue or anything. You just feel that something is not right. And he does that so exceptionally well in this movie. He does it really well in all of his movies, but this is a a really delightfully juicy example of it. It's it's shocking how you can watch this film play out and you see Rosemary get drugged and impregnated by something we don't know at the time what exactly it is and then you spend the next you know hour and a bit being like well rosemary maybe you are you know overreacting a little bit i i don't know if that actually really did happen the the fact that a filmmaker can convince the viewer that what they saw wasn't really what they saw because the character is going through with it is just absolutely masterful but it's also interesting i think an aspect of this movie i find very interesting is the fact that no one takes her seriously but the director does he respects Mm -hmm. her paranoia and he respects the fact that pregnancy and impending motherhood even if they are at the heart of what she's terrified of like he respects that as a genuine emotional state which is actually quite interesting to get from a filmmaker who is now like the poster child for um (laughs) you know basically anti-womanhood uh i find it very interesting that he makes this movie where um he even if the audience isn't on her side he always is yeah Mm -hmm. well what's your number one pick then I mean, again, I could pick Rosemary's Baby as well, but I have to go with Halloween by John Carpenter because it is a movie that I watch a lot. I didn't actually see it for the first time until I was a full-grown adult because, again, that kind of um, uh, murder-by-numbers, slasher, dicer kind of movie I was just never interested in. But I I have a lot of really close friends who grew up loving these movies, so I'm like, all right, I'll give them a shot. Um, And none of them have ever equaled Halloween, the original. I think it's just a brilliant brilliant movie it does so much with so little because it's made you know on a very low budget and made very quickly um it's the scariest of all of them and it's also it's actually one of the few of these slasher movies that 
that doesn't, um, it doesn't hate women basically like the nerdy girl is best friends with the cool girl. And, um, the fact that even though they, they, I, some of them die after they have sex, but that's not like the rule. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't really associate, um, a conservative judgmental attitude towards teenage behavior with their punishment. Um, and that kind of makes it scarier because he's just this appetite for destruction without any particular reason. And I just love the look of it. I love the way it's shot. Um, and I love watching it on Halloween. It's my, one of my best friends, it's her favorite movie. So we watch it every year on Halloween and it's, um, it's a very dear tradition for me now. It's, it's a movie I haven't seen and it sort of falls into the category of the types of horror movies that don't really interest me because I didn't grow up with horror movies. So the slashers are are sort of the, that main sub genre of, I'm just like, eh, not really for me. Yeah, it's it's a really basic genre for me, and it's a it's a very exploitative genre, right? Like it's um, everything's mm-hmm. made on a micro budget for maximum profit because teenagers get something out of having their am- sort of amorphous fears um, gelled into the very exact presence of um, so, what am I saying? I'm using words that I don't understand. Basically, like we have all these feelings and emotions and insecurities and fears as teenagers and horror movies put them in very concrete terms and help us deal with them. I think that's why these movies appeal to young people. I find that I know way more gay men and women who love horror movies than anybody else. And I wonder if it is also because these are groups of people who are raised to feel vulnerable in a world that doesn't take them as seriously as it does men, straight men. And I wonder if that that's the appeal for it as well. I find that very interesting. Um, but again, for me, I just never found them. They just didn't really do it for me. But even if, even if that's how you feel about them, Halloween is the exception and you have to see it at least once. It's so good. I, I, I know I will eventually get around to watching it. Uh, I'll probably have to, the impetus will have to be like, Oh, I'm going to do a podcast about this. This is my reason to watch it. (laughs) But moving on, we've got now our romance mm-hmm. films, and I'm also very curious to sort of hear uh, what we think of each other's picks. Uh, this is the second time that I've had to remove a movie because it was on a recent list, and that was The Apartment, so I'm not going to talk about mm-hmm. that. But uh, my two actual picks are two very, very recent films. Very recent, in fact. Uh, my runner-up is just from last year, and that is the Norwegian film The Worst Person in the World. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say The Northman, and I was like, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I love the romance plot between uh, Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. <laughs> I really felt the energy there. <laughs> no. Uh, the worst person in the world. I, I, I watched this movie and could not believe the fact that it was, what was it, three and a half hours, mm-hmm. however long it is. And in just the journey that we went on and the fact that they, the filmmakers were so bold to be able to, you know, mix in different genres and styles yeah. of filmmaking that. Also, what version did you watch? I did not watch a three and a half hour film. <laughs> I, I, it was a long movie though, wasn't it? I, I don't think so. I don't remember two, it just oh, being no, a regular two hours. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. All yeah. right. That's weird. Uh, but it's one I still really, really like uh, with some absolutely fantastic performances, especially from its lead, Renat Reins, who, mm-hmm. you know, is able to be such a complicated woman that 
we can go on this journey mm-hmm. and be like, you're not likable all the time, but I still like yeah. you as a person. Yeah. Uh, and then my number one pick is is not as recent as Worst Person in the World, but still very recent, only a few years old. And that is the Celine Sciamma film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Nice. Uh, you know, it's not just because I'm a straight guy and I, and I like, you know, the idea of, of lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is just genuinely so beautiful and so tender. And there's a couple moments in this movie where every time I see it, it just absolutely takes my breath away. The main one being when um, she sees her in the white dress, just silhouetted in the hallway. Amazing. Just every time yeah. that happens. I, that's the it, shot I think of whenever I think of this movie. Yeah. I literally gasp every time I see yeah. that shot because it's just so beautiful and, and so thoughtful and there's so much emotion. And then, of course, at the very end of the movie, when you're watching one of the characters just cry yeah. and you're just in this moment and you yourself are bawling. This movie makes me feel all the emotions. It's incredible. And I love Adele Ayanel as the, the sort of the object of desire in that film. I think she's an incredible actor. So, yeah, those are very good picks. Uh, I'm a lot more, um, I'm a lot more heteronormative than you are. So I guess I'm failing (laughs) in this category. Um, There is nothing better than when a romance is good, a romantic movie. And there's nothing worse than when it's not, you know what I mean? Like when you, when you accomplish Mm -hmm. the magic of making me care about characters enough that I need them to get together, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. Cause it's, it's, it's just one of those things where movies just become something completely magical where you're like, how do you do that? You know? Um, and then when it's not, when you're like, why am I watching these people? It's just the, it's just the worst thing to have to sit through. Um, my runner up is the English patient by Anthony Minghella. Um, oh, as Bill. famously, uh, as famously expressed on a Seinfeld episode, not everyone's favorite epic movie. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I can't. It's too long. Quit telling your stupid story about the stupid desert and just die already. Die! You mean you don't like the movie? I hate it! I'll go to hell! I love it, and I love the romance in it, because I love that he gets away with something as ridiculous as this very purple melodrama that he has and the lines that they say in this movie, you know, he's like, when you leave here, you should forget me. And yet you have these actors doing it with such incredible honesty that it all works. And I, I've never been more upset coming home from a movie than I was that film. It, it really, really rocked my world. And I've seen it uh, so many times and I love it every time. It's so beautiful. And if I had to be someone else in this world, I'd probably still be me, but if I had to pick someone else, it would be Kristen Scott Thomas. Cause I think she's just, she's just got it all. Um, so I really love that film. That's also Ray Fiennes at his absolute smoking hottest. And, uh, so yeah. Really for me, I would say that, uh, Voldemort is, is Ray Fiennes at his hottest. Yeah. Well, again, stage crew. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I'd still give him the time of day. I have to tell you, even though, you know, you should never, never do it with a, a boy who's over 30. It's like eating a cheeseburger off the floor, but uh, Ray, Ray <laughs> Fines could Bill. still get it from me. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're going to get so many emails about me. They're like, never have that guy on again. He's terrible. I almost picked a Woody Allen movie for this category, but I was like, if I have Polanski and Woody Allen, then people will just get to know me too well. So, um, <laughs> so my number one is actually, Douglas Sirk's masterpiece, All That Heaven Allows, which is another really great example 
of a political message hidden not so subtly within a very captivating and endearing story about these two people who genuinely fall in love with each other in a way that I find wholly credible, but everything about them being together is wrong for their society. And they, they endure the difficulties of that until they ask themselves, well, what's so great about everyone approving, you know? Um, And I find that this movie just, it hasn't aged a day, even though it takes place in a very specific time period and context and also a particular period of the way films were made. I mean, they made movies in the fifties in a way that didn't reflect reality and in a way that they never made in any other period in Hollywood. Um, but I, but it affects me very deeply. I'm, I, I, I again, it's another movie I've seen a hundred billion times and, uh, it, it, it gets me in the core every time I see it. This isn't, yeah, this is also one that I'm not familiar with. I'm not a big Rock Hudson or a Jane Wyman fan, so that's probably why it's never really come across my radar. But how's that possible? Jane Wyman is just one of the greatest. It's because you haven't seen anything that she's in or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I know I've seen a couple of things. I can't, off the top of my head, think of what they are, but I just sort of find that she just sort of... uh, disappears into the wallpaper oh, a little bit. Oh, no, 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 no. You're canceled. Um, no, she <laughs> she has some wonderful moments in this film. I, one of my favorites is just that she picks up a broken piece of um, Wedgwood crockery and he's and she just, just the way she says, oh, I, I, I would probably steal this from you. I love Wedgwood. And there's just something so dynamic about I love I love when actors are really great at a throwaway moment. You know, something that doesn't seem important yet they, they give it um, something a bit enchanted and that's a always been a classic example for me she's also really great in the yearling if you've ever seen that that's a really really cool movie and she's magnificent in that so you just just watch no, watch more jane wyman you haven't seen the right ones okay yeah. okay okay yeah. i'm sorry <laughs> you should be i noticed you didn't push back about my my rock hudson comment well though. rock hudson um is not my favorite actor you know like i love him and i love the legend of rock hudson i actually re- recently read a really really good biography on him uh and i love I, I i love how beautiful he was like i love the myth that he sold and he's so of an era but he's not he didn't have layers that i find fascinating or anything so i i wouldn't object to someone saying that they didn't a friend of mine told me he didn't think he was good looking and i was like okay you're insane but i get why <laughs> why and he he's another one where like there's not a whole lot in his filmography that is worth cherishing, but the ones that are, especially his work with Douglas Sirk is, is really great. And this is just, I mean, everyone is just at the top of their game in this film. Mm. Yeah. Sirk, Sirk is a blind spot for me. Uh, I, I know I need to get into his works. I mean, you, again, it, it's, you, there's no requirement on my part, but like you're missing out on a great deal of cinematic pleasure. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful world to explore. Now, I, I want to ask, because I, I enjoy listening to Be Problematic, if you did include a Woody Allen film, which one would it have oh, been? Oh, it would be The Purple Rose of Cairo, which is um, actually his favorite of all his films. It's him at his least cynical. Uh, it's him just allowing himself to believe ju- just a little bit more in humanity than he normally does. Um, and it's also the... It's at the period, I mean, I don't know what was really going on with him and Mia at that point personally, but it's certainly at the period at which their artistic collaborations are at their most fruitful and positive and lovely. Uh, 
it's very obvious when he writes this part for her, when he writes Hannah and her sisters for her a year later, that this is, it's obvious at this point that it's someone he really deeply admires. Um, and so it's really, it's still very pleasurable to watch, but the purple rose of Cairo is also one of the best examples of magic realism and the sort of enchantment of fantasy combined with a, a gritty reality. And then it's just this a very sweet romance at the core of it. I, I just love it. And and part of the romance isn't even the characters. It's like the director with his audience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's move on to our action picks. This is uh, the third and final time that I've had to remove one of my mm-hmm. picks. But my runner up is this was this was actually quite a tricky one for me more tricky than i expected yes. i'm not a huge action fan despite what i'm sure someone like you would think of me being uh, a straight cis man would uh no because I, I know that you're not a bro so <laughs> <laughs> i thank you yeah. thank you bill i really appreciate i know that, that you're not good at being a straight cis man that's why i wouldn't assume that you would have a, a lock on the action category <laughs> <laughs> well thank You're you welcome. so both of my picks are ones that uh, i'm sure that you could actually probably appreciate quite mm-hmm. a bit uh and are very surprising and my my runner-up ended up being uh the japanese film harikari oh. I, I i watched this and just was so befuddled by it but the fact that it seemingly is a slow-paced movie about a man who wants to commit suicide mm-hmm. Inside uh, a, a fort, uh, a castle, whatever you want to call it. And then slowly as this movie unravels and we learn more and more about why he wants to kill himself, it just gets more engrossing. And then it eventually leads to an absolutely epic all-time battle sequence where it's basically one man against an army. And it's, it's so... It, it blew me away watching it. And by the end, I was just like, the movie that this starts out to be is so wildly different than the movie yeah. ends out to be. You watch the first, you know, half three quarters. This is not an action movie at all. This is a contemplative drama about what guilt and sadness will, will do to a person. And then you watch the final act of it. And it's an all out epic samurai film of great proportions. And you're talking about the early sixties Masaki Kobayashi film. Absolutely. Because yeah, yes. there's a remake from the 2000s by Takashi Miike, which is actually pretty good. I didn't mind it. But the. Oh, I didn't even know they yeah, did that. Okay. It, I, I thought it was pretty good. But um, the original is a masterpiece. Like, it's a perfect movie. I love Japanese cinema in the 60s. That's the golden age of Japanese cinema for me, uh, particularly a very beautiful um, cinemascope black and white films made uh, in that country during that time. And Harakiri Harakiri is. Um, up there with the best of them. And Tatsuya Nakadai, who's the star of that film is probably in my like top three of hottest men who was ever in movies. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah, great choice. Well, uh, my number one pick, you know, I'm not going to travel very far from uh, 1960s Japan. Oh, cool. In fact, I'm basically just going to travel a decade earlier to 1950s Japan. And my number one action movie is seven. Samurai. Oh, yeah. If you have a whole day to watch it's, it, yeah. It, <laughs> for me i don't think i've ever seen more impressive battle sequences the fact that you know there's so much rain going on in this muddy mm-hmm. world and there's horse going every which way and buildings on fire and arrows fire firing from every direction you still at every given moment know exactly 
where everyone is, what their state is, both mentally and physically, what the stakes are, everything like that. And the fact that, like, yes, it does have a slow buildup, but it's so worth it for this end battle sequence of a small group of samurai helping to defend a small village from these bandits who are overtaxing Mm -hmm. them and they are deciding to take a stand. And yes, it's been remade a hundred times, almost in a given year, a TV show will basically yeah. use the plot of Seven Samurai as an episode basis. And when people like it's always shocking that people don't realize where this comes from and how it's just like one of the most off repeated tropes in in movie history. Well, and, and, and he was point. inspired by American <laughs> Westerns, right? So it's kind of like a feedback loop. It really was. Yeah, it was a guy inspired by Westerns who then was inspired a director who was inspired by samurai films to make a Western Mm -hmm. about it. And Mm -hmm. then he was inspired by the West. It it really was a feedback loop. Yeah. Feedback loop of epic. And then there's Rashomon as well, which is also a movie that contributed a particular style of storytelling as well. Like uh, Kurosawa is a very formative director for anyone interested Mm -hmm. in exploring movies. Uh, Seven Samurai is a particularly magnificent film. Um, no pun intended. And I think that that <laughs> slow buildup is necessary. I think that you don't get the satisfaction of the final climax of that movie without it building up properly. I mean, his, his structure in terms of getting us into the world of characters and their interactions and their needs is, is really quite extraordinary. Um, and it's also, I, I love to tell people it's a movie that my mom loved and like my Greek mother who, um, you know, she speaks English and she can read, but subtitles are not her favorite place to be. And also usually drives me crazy with questions watching movies. Cause she's, she's always like half in and half out for some reason. I put that movie on and she just did not move for four hours. She was like, I need to know that these villagers are going to be okay. And just, um, I, it's one of my favorite memories of that film is that she was just like r- enraptured by it. Um, I've seen it a few times and the last time I watched it, I was like, I think I'm good. Like it's, it's such a long movie. I'm like, I think I've seen this enough times now, but who knows what the future holds. Well, then the last thing I want to ask you about that, you, you're talking about uh, all time top hottest male mm-hmm. actors. Where does Toshiro Mifune place for you in that list? Um, not as high as Tetsuya. Toshiro is really sexy. He's not as handsome. Um, he's, particularly well served by samurai movies because he's always in those very very short shifts and he has very nice legs um and then he (laughs) aged like a straight man by the end of the 60s he got very boxy you know because men in general we all age one way or the other we all become russell crowe or mr furley from three's company like we all become wizened little logs (laughs) or we just we or we look like we just ate the fridge one day and did never looked back. Um, and so he's sort of in the latter category, but in the early, in the fifties and early sixties, he's still, he's, he's very athletic and very, very sexy and also has a, a real roguish personality. So he'd probably be better on a date, mm-hmm. but Tatsuya was more handsome. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. So what are your picks? Uh, of other Japanese men from the sixties or my action movies? Um, you know, either or, if you want to talk about no, that, that's okay. I'm here that's for okay. it. Because um, <laughs> I'll veer into the very problematic at that point. Uh, no, <laughs> this is actually one of the hardest ones to pick only because it's one of the most plentiful genres, especially for people my age and later. Like action movies became the main thing because they were so lucrative in the 80s that like 
especially when it comes to B movies and straight to video production, like everything was an action movie, you know, because all of my Greek uncles had to watch everything Chuck Norris ever did, even though it was all pablum. Um, so this is probably the one that would change the most if I looked at it again, because there's a lot of eighties movies that I love, but like you, I went back further into the past and I actually, I thought that we would be very different on this. Um, in, in that I didn't expect you to pick classics for this one, but I'm going even further back. My runner up is, um, actually the adventures of Robin hood with Errol Flynn. I, it still thrills me every time I watch it. I think it's still a perfect movie. I think it's still the best Robin Hood movie. I think it's one of the best adventure movies ever made. It's one of the most beautiful movies ever made. Um, and it still has this like just enchanted star quality to it that has not worn off. You know what I mean? It's um, it's not in any way tarnished. I just love it. Uh, and that's all you need to say about that. My number one has to be a James Bond movie because I've been deeply deeply obsessed with the James Bond franchise since I was a little kid. Um, so I'll say Goldfinger. I think it's probably the best one. Although catch me on a different day. I'll say from Russia with love or Dr. No, the early Sean Connery ones are my favorite. Um, and maybe on a different day, I'll say Skyfall or I'll say tomorrow never dies. Who knows? But we'll say Goldfinger for now, especially because it's not the first Bond movie, but it's the first movie that is establishes everything that we love and know about Bond all combined. Like, the the gadgets are all there the opening theme the girls um q all these elements that had been smattered around in the first two films but really like bond mania hits its apex with goldfinger i saw the suit my dad wore when he came to canada when he walked off the boat and i'm pretty sure he bought it because it's the same suit that sean connery wore in that movie that sort of shark skin <laughs> the one that leonardo dicaprio goes shopping for in catch me if you can um mm-hmm. And I know that everything my dad loved about this um, genre, this franchise, a lot of it's from Goldfinger, just because my dad doesn't remember anything from movies ever, and he knows that entire movie off by heart. And um, I just find it so deeply funny. I mean, he basically saves the world by being a great lay. Uh, Those movies were a very hilarious indulgence in the capitalist male fantasy, Um while also somewhat in a sly way being a criticism and a commentary on it as well. There is always something tongue in cheek funny about Bond so that they're never obnoxiously um, offensive in any way to me. And then when they are, I find it funny. Uh, I also love the women in Bond movies because even though, I mean, they are there as sort of objects of desire, but at the same time, there's no other women in movies from that time who love having sex and don't care that he leaves when he's done, uh, which I find to be something of a pretty big deal, even though they're also like, there's, you know, sort of body fascism involved. They're all beautiful and thin and whatever, but, but they are in their own twisted, weird way liberated. And I find that really fun. And Honor Blackman in that as pussy galore is just extraordinary. I mean, she's so great. Um, And then he cures her lesbianism, which is, you know, again, problematic, but but also hilarious. <laughs> Those are two very interesting and very different picks. I, I quite like both of them as well. I am a big fan of the adventures of Robin mm-hmm. Hood, Errol Flynn, probably at his, as absolute peak there yeah. with Olivia de Havilland as mm-hmm. well. The, the two of them play so well together and even, you know, Basil Rathbone oh, and, so and everyone great. else yeah. you've got in that movie, just, 
you've got everyone, you know, turning up to 11, chewing on all the scenery that is barely being held together there, yeah. but it works so well because everyone is so committed. Yeah, if Michael Curtiz was involved, uh, it was always a cut above, you know? He was just really great. Yes. So. Yeah. And then Goldfinger is a very interesting pick as well because, yeah, you could probably pick anywhere from, you know, there's eight to ten really great James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, about another dozen or so that are fine. And then you've got about another dozen or so that are just absolutely forgettable. But uh, Goldfinger is definitely one of the ones in the that, that upper echelon tier of really great action yeah. films. And you're right. Do- Dr. No is very much a standalone film. They could have never made it again. They could have called the character something completely different and you would never even yeah. notice. But the fact that then they, they were able to create the mythos of James For Bond sure. with movies like GoldenEye afterwards is where it really all came together. Yes. And even though Goldfinger is a better movie, Dr. No is my favorite Bond girl because Ursula Andress in that is my uh – is my absolute role model in life. <laughs> yeah. Coming out of the, the ocean with yep, the conches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and putting black widow spiders in the tents of men who try to have their way with her. Yeah. I mean, what else do you want? <laughs> She's so great. Uh, and it's also, I mean, I also have a, uh, as a kid, it was one of the few times my dad would let me stay up late was to watch James Bond movies. And I've always been, I always loved movies because of the opportunity to see how grownups lived, even though I knew that it wasn't real. Um, and I also love them as an opportunity to see the whole world and the travel aspect of the great travel logs was, uh, the thing that appealed to me most as a kid. Um, but I just, I I love, Mm -hmm. I love the whole thing and I will, I will watch a bad bond movie over anything else. Like I'm always in the mood for any of them. Even if you put on Moonraker, which I consider to be the absolute lowest point of that entire franchise. Um, I say yes, and let's do it, you know. (laughs) All right. Now we're on to our last Mm -hmm. category, and that is biopic. Yet again, another genre that is hard to pin down and really isn't even a genre itself. It is much like animation, sort of a medium because it could be a funny biopic. It could be a scary biopic. It could be a romantic biopic, whatever you want it to be. But for the purpose of this, it was interesting. There was uh, recently an, an article on that shelf where they talked about their uh, all-time, they ranked the, the, the best biopics. And some of them I quibbled with and being like, is that mm-hmm. really a biopic? Yeah, it's based on a true event, but is that a biopic? It's, it's so tough. You really have to narrow it down to, you know, is it about one or two people particularly? Are they Are they someone that you would recognize yeah. because some of the, the the biopics are basically just based on a true story that that's not a biopic to me that's not someone i recognize or know of basically. yeah i actually i contributed to that article i wrote a few of the blurbs you did and yes. uh i was actually very surprised that some of the movies the, the i never thought of goodfellas as a biopic even though i guess it technically qualifies exactly but, but um yeah and things were not in my preferred ranking order but that's what happens when you write something with like 10 other people is that you have to allow for other people's preferences and opinions as much as i hate doing exactly it. Yeah. but <laughs> there were some really solid picks on there including my runner up which is the Ryan Coogler film Fruitvale Station right. it's so it's so fascinating because you know this is a story about uh, Oscar Grant who was killed in uh, Oakland by the transit police and it sort of was one of the I want to say inciting incidents for the way that we now view uh, police brutality mm-hmm. in the last decade or so it really was that sort of inciting incident and and so often 
murders like this are just a headline. You know, often there'll be protests and things like that. We know the names, we see the pictures, but we don't really know who these people are. They're nothing more than a figurehead, for better or for worse, however you want to look at it. And Fruitvale Station shows what sort of a complicated person oscar grant was and that you know maybe he wasn't always the the best person he was trying to be a good person but you know he had his flaws but at the end of the day he didn't deserve to be murdered for whatever perceived or unperceived actions he may have done in his life to the point where everything beforehand it doesn't matter because police shouldn't be killing people regardless sort of thing so it's it's such a fascinating biopic and Michael B. Jordan sort of stepping out of the shadow of of being the kid from The Wire and stepping into, you know, being a movie star. And he's kind of slowed down in recent years Some if he picks on some movies. <laughs> but he was just such a – turned into such a great performance in this film. Uh, and I'm going to shock you by telling you I still haven't seen it and I've been meaning to watch it since it came out. Yeah. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but my my actual pick is also a bit of a off the beaten path pick. Uh, it it now shows up more and more, but I think when the movie first came out, it was one that was sort of ignored by most audiences, and that is the Brian Wilson biopic Love and oh. Mercy, which featured two performances uh, playing Brian Wilson, and you've got Paul Dano who plays him at his younger creative peak era and then you have john cusack in his older era where he's really suffering from his addictions his mental health issues and basically being um enslaved by his his manager and forcing him to do work that he does not want to do and cusack and dano look absolutely nothing alike you if you put them together you would never be like oh yeah you guys can play father son let alone the exact same person but it doesn't matter because it's the essence of this movie that works so well and the fact that you also have such great beach boys music as the soundtrack really doesn't hurt it um again i haven't seen this so yeah what a way to end (laughs) (laughs) well that is fine It, it just means you can't make fun of me i guess about my picks but uh, I I stand behind both. I'm curious. I've I have been curious about seeing Love and Mercy as well. I don't like Paul Dano at all, so uh, that kind of okay. um, it it just kept it from being particularly high on my list. But I'll get around to it eventually. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, Stephanie, if she's listening to this episode, just gasped at you saying oh. that. Uh, so we'll move on, and, uh, and you can tell me what your biopic picks. Uh, well, my runner-up is actually probably what I think of as the best, but um, I put it at number two because my number one is the movie that I would actually take on a desert island with me. Um, but my runner-up is An Angel at My Table by Jane Campion. I actually wrote about this in that article that you referenced um, from that shelf. Mm-hmm. It's the story of the life of Janet Frame, who was um, one of New Zealand's most famous and beloved authors. Um, she was an incredibly timid, um, socially awkward person who was misdiagnosed as schizophrenic by some very ambitious uh, psychologists who were looking to... Um, break ground in the uh, exciting new field of, um, of of examining that particular issue. So she was actually in line to get lobotomized. And it just so happened that a book that she published won a prize and they realized that they couldn't lobotomize one of their national nationally beloved and admired authors. And it's a story about your art literally saving your life. Um, but it's also, I mean, Jane Campion is a magnificent filmmaker, as we all know. 
Uh, and this is my absolute favorite of her films. And there's not a single second of it that I find dull. It's another movie that I find so perfectly efficient and that not a moment is wasted. It's very long. She adapts three autobiographies into one film. And she actually initially, initially made it for television. It was supposed to be a miniseries, but it was so good that the distributors decided to release it theatrically instead. Um, which is why she's kind of iffy on it. Cause she says when she watches it, she sees something that was shot with television in mind. And so she doesn't think of it as a very cinematic movie. And, uh, but I'm like, I don't give a shit. I think this movie is incredible. Uh, and, um, <laughs> very powerful, very emotional, uh, but fascinating and funny and dark and captures a time and a place with a great deal of, um, potency. Uh, it's upsetting how like dirty everyone's life is of these poor people. But at the same time, it's, there's something unusually glamorous about it. I don't know. I, I, I don't know the movies that you love the most. It's hard to really talk about why you love them so much. So uh, before I get mm-hmm. too rambly, I'll just say it's an absolute must see. It's probably in like my top 25 favorite movies of all time. Um, but, but I'm not supposed to talk about that as much as I am about my number one, which is out of Africa by Sidney Pollock starring Meryl Streep, which of course was featured on the article. I didn't write the blurb about it because I was not going to get in the way of, um, Pat Mellon's writing about Meryl movies because that's his world. Pat is the biggest Meryl Streep fan I've ever known. Although I wrote about cry in the dark. So I guess I got to do that one. Uh, but Out of Africa is uh, the story of Karen Blixen, who wrote novels under the name Isaac Dennison, um, including the story Babette's Feast, which was made into a film a couple years out- after Out of Africa, partly because Out of Africa renewed interest in her work. Uh, she's one of the most incredible writers ever. But um, this movie is about her early years living in Africa with um, her husband, the Baron, the Baron von Blixen, played by Klaus Maria Brandauer. And everything that she later wrote about uh, in terms of her years in Kenya, uh, running a coffee farm. It's a very, it's not a movie that works for everybody. A lot of people find it a bit too prestigious, a bit too passionless. Um, And, you know, it has a very hands-off attitude towards the colonial situation that it is describing. Um, But also a very honest one, I find. And... I don't really know why I love this movie so much. I first saw it as a teenager when I, when I also first fell in love with Meryl and maybe that's the travel aspect of it. Like you really go somewhere in this film. I don't know, but I've, I have watched it an unusually high amount of times and I love every, every bit of it. It could also be one of my favorite romances as well, even though it's about a failed romance about being in love with emotionally unavailable men, which maybe because of this movie, I made a real nasty habit of for much of my adult life <laughs> until becoming this soft and charming and optimistic person you see before you now. Um, so charming and optimistic. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's one of the most beautiful movies ever made. And I don't know, I just love it. I, I, I And I, I, love, I love stories about artists. Um, developing as artists. I mean, she hadn't written anything yet by the time she uh, spent her years in Africa. And then once she went back to Denmark, she never returned to Africa and then became like one of the most famous authors of all time. So. Yeah, this is, this is a movie I'm not overly fond of, to be honest. Uh, And, and as you have said multiple times, this list is all so subjective. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to, you know, be like, you're wrong about this. It's maybe it's because I didn't 
see it when it originally came out and swept up in that in that era. <laughs> it just, for some reason, I, I don't know yeah. why. Allow me to point out, neither did I. It just I. didn't work for Dakota, me. Dakota, I was eight when this movie came out. Okay, I'm not that old. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't no, know I was seven, old. actually. You like to date yourself? Uh, no, you know what? More people feel the way you do than that, than I do. Like, I know that I'm in the minority on this one. And I actually get why people don't like it. It's just... I don't know. Every once in a while, a boring movie comes along that is just exactly what I want and is a world that I want to be in. And uh, this is one of them. Very interesting. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you that worked for you and you like it. Um, I have not seen the Jane Campion film that you you mentioned, so I can't really. You got to do it. I either. feel like you would really like it. You got to see it. It's so good. Yeah, I uh, this is this is a very common thing that I've been saying uh, all episode. But Jane Campion is also someone who is mostly in my my blind oh. spot. Uh, I think The Power of the Dog is the only movie. Yeah, I think first. we talked about this before. Actually, when we were talking about the Oscars, um, the the nice thing yes. is is that her filmography is not exceptionally long, so catching up with her won't take you too mm-hmm. long. Um, I like all her stuff. I don't particularly like her Meg Ryan movie. Um, I, I don't think of that one. In the cut. yeah, I Jane Campion is one of those great filmmakers who can't really do genre, uh, which is also why I didn't love her top of the lake series either. But, um, but, but, you know, I still think it's worth watching. Uh, but you know, the angel at my table, the piano masterpieces, I love, uh, the Kate Winslet movie that she did, which is probably her least seen film. And I love, love, love bright star with, um, cute little gay boy from James Bond. What's his name? Ben Wishaw. I love that film too. <laughs> I I love your adjectives. You <laughs> you make everything sound uh, so oh, delicious. Thank you. But uh, there we go. Those are those are ten movies. Well, twenty movies really. Ten different genres. Our favorite movies from that. Uh, happy birthday to me for doing this. But Bill, thank you so much for joining me again today. As always, it's a blast. You've given me more than enough movies to put on my watch list. Oh, but where is the best place for people to follow you? And what have you been working on? Um, I have been working on still surviving this era that we're living in um, and trying to get back into working on things. Uh, Creativity has been very hard for me under COVID, but let's keep things light. Um, So, uh, but otherwise I keep up on my blog, on my movie blog, which is at myoldaddiction.com where I release movie reviews most days. I review everything I've ever seen. I'm almost at 9,000 reviews and um I really enjoy doing it, which is why I keep doing it. But I really appreciate the people who who read it and um, and and respond. Uh, most people have nice things to say, which is really great, and I appreciate it. Uh, and then I also have my podcast, Bad Game Movies. We're on hiatus for a little while, but if you've never listened to it, you have 150 episodes to catch up on. So there's plenty there, and you can find it at badgamemovies.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll, I'll admit I am a, a bad reader of yours. I don't read every review that you put out, but every once in a while, like at least if, like once or twice a week, you'll post your review and be like, "Ooh, I really need to know what Bill has to think." Oh, that's about nice. This no, movie. I mean, listen, I appreciate. I I don't keep score of like, "Are you my friend? Are you reading my?" You know, like I do it because it's a pleasure for me <laughs> to do it. And if no one read it, I would still do it. Uh, but you know, I if. It's, it's your time, it's your money, it's, or not money in this case, but it's your time. So like, if you choose to spend it on me, I will always say thank you. Even, even if you write me and tell me that you think I'm stupid, which some people do. 
Well, that's why I enjoy your comments about this show when you, when you DM me about <laughs> your thoughts on uh, all my mistakes. Yes. Although I have to, I, I should also say publicly that actually you make very few mistakes and that I really enjoy your show. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be on it, uh, particularly because you always are so generous, uh, and kind to your guests. And, uh, thank you for including me on your birthday again. I'm very happy to wish you a very happy birthday and I hope you, I hope you do it upright. Thank you. I'll have to come up with something really clever Mm -hmm. to do for next year uh, and have you back for that. You can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And uh, let us know who has better taste in movies, Bill or myself. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm -hmm.